Hey everybody, this is Ray Felsch, and this is episode 75 of Have Not Seen This, a weekly in-depth look at a much-beloved movie, selected specifically by our guest, that they're a little surprised when they find out people have not seen. Hope everyone's having a great week out there. It's time for our regular movie conversation. I don't have a lot to say in the way of introduction because uh, I've already said it all before. This is the third time uh, that Thomas Mariani has appeared on the show. Fourth, if you count the Oscar episode. And uh, everything I've said about him in the past when he picked previous movies is true. I mean, I I love talking movies with Thomas. Uh, He has great insights. Uh, It's just always a fun time to discuss movies. And and he's consistently bringing fantastic movies to the show to talk about, whether they're films that I had heard about before, but had kind of written off or films that I love, or in this case, film that I just hadn't gotten a chance to watch yet and now had an excuse to do so. And this week's movie is The King of Comedy from 1982. It is one of Martin Scorsese's underappreciated films. And I say that as someone who has now seen it and absolutely loves it. Um, You know, our conversation as usual does kind of get into spoiler territory, but I feel like you can still listen to it without having seen the movie, but I do encourage you to see the movie because the cinematography, the 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 way this film is assembled, the editing, all of it is just brilliant. And it's one of those films where I'm not going to tell you, you know, to, to go watch it before you listen to the episode because I want you to listen to the episode, but it is an episode where I'm going to say, go watch this movie. If you enjoy our conversation about it, go watch it. If you want to watch it before you listen to our conversation, go watch it, but go check it out. Totally worth the time to see this, especially if you love Martin Scorsese film. So with that said, here we go with The King of Comedy from 1982 with the return, yet again, of Thomas Mariani from Double Edge, Double Bill. So the timing of this is kind of interesting, just in that I know you you were affected by Conan O'Brien choosing to step down from, from his show on TBS. Right, yeah, which just happened recently. Yeah, I was I was uh, very um, you know nostalgically kind of uh, sad about that, about him coming off. Yeah, he was a big big uh, comedic influence on me. Yeah, and I I think watching this made me think of kind of the role of late night television because that's such a prominent part of the movie, and yet I almost feel like it's a deteriorating part of our culture. Like we still have you know, the tonight show and, and that kind of stuff. But I don't know many people who stay up to watch them. They watch the clips that make it to YouTube or, or social media the next day. Right. And I think I've even been like that. I think some people have evolved well to that. Like I would say a uh, Dezos and Mero who used to have like the, the YouTube show and now kind of, ball. I think they're doing a pretty good job. I love Amber Ruffin's show that's on Peacock that not a lot of people watch, but it's, we've gotten the more popular ones are like Fallon and Corden. They're a lot yeah. more just kind of like, we're designing this for just annoying clips, basically. Yeah, and and like Jesus and Mero, I'm familiar with, but I've never actually watched them. Like, I've heard mm-hmm. their entry on other podcasts, but I've never seen their actual show themselves. Yeah, but even then, like, just, I think Conan was sort of like the last of like that era. Right, guys. And yeah. even then, he was like the youngest guy. He was always sort of like the newer kid until everyone kind of deteriorated back. I think now the closest is like a Colbert. And even then, he still is like he feels like he has one foot in each kind of thing. Well, and that's because I think you know he came from the satirical background of of performing a different character. He didn't do straight talk show until he took over the late the late show. So right, um, yeah. I mean, Conan. I mean, I know he's still going to do stuff like I think he has a contract with HBO, HBO Plus. He's going to do like an HBO Max like variety show. He said it's not going to be a traditional talk show though. Right. And even he had changed his format over the last couple of years and gone from the hour long to the half hour long and kind of gotten rid of the monologue and, you know, the, the how we perceive late night television to be or how we're used to it having been. Or even I, I loved his stuff that he was doing at the Largo during that last like few months or so during the pandemic. It's so much more intimate. And he's been doing podcasting stuff as well. Yeah. Um, he didn't invent podcasting. No, he people not. out there, which everyone is saying, like, oh, my God, he revolutionized it. Just like <laughs> he's doing a very good job with the format that a lot of other people, like maybe some people on this show <laughs> were doing before he did. <laughs> That's I keep 
I, I, I feel like I keep repeating my story when I because people discover the show and they're like, how long have you been doing this? And I'm like, well, I actually was one of the first entertainment slash movie podcasts out there way back when. <laughs> Climbed out of the primordial stew of right, entertainment right. podcast. Well, and frankly, you know, I, I do love Conan's podcast, um, but mm-hmm. I give more credit to its development and success to Matt Gourley, you know, who right. produces it. And he had done podcasting before uh, Conan's show. Right. Yeah, and also with Sonya, obviously. Like, the chemistry between those three is a lot of fun to watch, listen to on that show. Yeah. Yeah. I had another question I wanted to ask you before we got going. Well, uh, for the record, I think the big thing I wanted to do with this particular episode, just to hijack it, I have never answered the main question of your show. Have you never? Despite being like, because the first time I did it was the second episode, you hadn't really gotten right. that together. Yeah, I didn't put it in until then, like episode 30, so yeah. Right, and then I was on Muppets Take Manhattan, and we just, it never came up. And then oh. obviously the Oscar thing, it never happened. So, Rafe, maybe you should ask me a certain question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> What's funny is I almost deleted it from my script because you've been on the show before. So, the name of the show is Have Not Seen This, where we talk about movies we're surprised people have not seen. What are your have not seen this movies? What are movies you have not seen that other people are surprised by? Oh, Rafe, wow, I'm so surprised you asked that question. Um, but I would say, I, I was thinking about this, especially coming onto the show, and the way I would sort of, like, put it is, like, there's certain different categories of ones where it's just like, oh, I haven't seen them. Like, the more populist ones tend to be ones that played on TV a lot, but for some reason I've only seen, like, few clips of. Like, A League of Their Own is the big one. Of that, You've never I've seen, seen like, League of Their Own? Wow. Not in full, no, I've seen There's No Crying in Baseball and all sorts of different clips from it, but never the full movie. In terms of, like, ones that are more, like, criterion nerdy, there are certain filmmakers I haven't seen a lot of, like, Wong Kar Wai. I haven't seen mm-hmm. a single one of his films. Or, like, A Paris, Texas has always been on the watch list, never seen it. Um, then there are even ones that were big critical acclaim ones, like Little Miss Sunshine. Somehow I did not manage to see that. Oh, that. Out of the ones you've named so far, that would be the one I'd say take on because that one is is a brilliant film yeah you're a big criterion fan i i just came from barnes and noble today and bought <laughs> because they have the sale every like july and like november so I, I go over there i got my first july paycheck gotta go <laughs> so what did you score i got ghost dog way of the samurai which um, i have never seen a moonstruck which i have never seen and the third one was the um mikey and nikki I have no idea what that is. Um, it's a movie starring Peter Falk and John Cassavetes. That's like uh, from um, Elaine May. It's a tremendous, like, character-focused movie about two like old gruff men arguing with each other in New York. Not at all related to our film today, right? <laughs> yeah, as I said, the the timing of this is interesting, both because of the Conan leaving, but also. I, I think, well, let's go ahead and get into the movie before I make that comment. Let's go ahead and yes. get into it. Um, we're talking today, uh, speaking of movies I had not seen, uh, about 1982's The King of Comedy, written by Paul D. Zimmerman, directed by Martin Scorsese, starring Robert De Niro, Jerry Lewis, Diane Abbott, Sandra Bernhardt, and Shelley Hack. And I'm thinking as I'm sitting here now, well, maybe this is my big break. This is my big chance. You know what I mean? You don't just walk on to a network show without experience. Now, I know it's an old hackneyed expression, but it happens to be the truth. You've got to start at the bottom. I know. That's where I am, at the bottom. That's a perfect place to start. So will you please give your warmest greetings to the newest king of comedy, Rupert Pupkin. His name is Rupert Pupkin. He lives in a world of make-believe. Oh, Jerry, I love this guy. Always coming up with these great lines. I love him. I love him. Nobody can remember his name. Mr. Pipkin. Mr. Pupnik. Mr. Puffer. Rupert. Pupkin. P-U-P-K-I-N. But by 11.30 tonight, the whole world will know that Rupert Pupkin is the new king of comedy. Robert De Niro. Jerry Lewis. In a Martin Scorsese picture. The king of comedy. That was the other thing that I was going to say. That was before we started. Because I know you're a co-host on your podcast, uh, Double Edge, Double Bill. Make sure we get the, the plug in there. Uh, I know we th- there's a recurring joke about the list, that, that Adam has a list of actors that he cannot stand. And you made me watch a fucking Sandra Bernhardt movie. <laughs> 
Because yeah, if I have a list, yeah. she's pretty high up there. No, I get it. I'm not usually a Sandra Barnhart person either, but I think that works so well to this movie's like yeah. entire cause. Like it's such brilliant casting of her. <laughs> well, and it was one of her first roles. Um, you know, I I I love her in like, and I'm going to get flack for this. I love her in Hudson Hawk because <laughs> I love uh, Hudson mm-hmm. Hawk. <laughs> When I have not seen, because I've heard such very dicey things about it. Oh, it is such a bad movie, but I love it so much. If we ever do a Bruce Willis episode of our show, I'm sure Hudson Hawk is likely to be the bad side of that coin. Oh, that's, it's, it's, it's marvelous. But anyway, we're not talking about it today. So The King of Comedy is one of, uh, it did not do well at the box office, it's, but uh, many people consider it to be one of Scorsese's best pictures, even though it's very different from what he's best known for. You know, I mean, he's best known for doing things like, you know, Casino and uh, uh, Goodfellas and, you know, that kind of stuff. How do you rank this on your Scorsese list, just out of curiosity? I would say it's maybe two Reiner like a Goodfellas. Okay. I I personally really love it. And I think the the weird thing is, I agree it's different from most of his other movies, but it does kind of feel like the weird, like, younger sibling to Taxi Driver. Yeah. Yeah. Right, for for a lot of the like about the main character, and even also written by another critic fo- turned screenwriter with Paul D. Zimmerman, right? Paul Schrader, yeah, and all that. So as I said, this one it didn't perform well at the box office. A lot of the people who've seen it love it. Um, the people who haven't usually haven't even heard of it, but it kind of rose back into the spotlight a couple of years ago, along with Taxi Driver, because uh, critics really kind of accused Joker of ripping it off. What is your history with this movie? Is this something you found because of Joker? Was it something you had seen before it? I'd seen it before because um, there was a point where, like, when I was in high school and I was digging through, like, Scorsese because I had seen, like, Goodfellas when I was far too young just because I had, you know, Italian family. It's a rite of passage. You must see the first <laughs> two Godfathers. You must see Goodfellas. What's Godfather 3? We're not going to tell you that. Right. You have to discover that on your own. Um, <laughs> that doesn't exist. <laughs> But uh, but then, uh, yeah, I, I ended up watching this one because it was sort of one of the ones that I'd heard was like the hidden gems. Like mm-hmm. after you get pa- it's like after you get past the main huge Scorsese ones, you got to get into the, the deeper cuts. This is like an interesting B-side. And I, I think it is phenomenal. And so, yeah, I I'd saw, seen it, I think, like in high school or so. And I instantly was just like, oh, this is amazing. I think it's because another big thing I think it predicted, a thing that I think has made it last so long, is that... It really, it didn't invent cringe comedy, but it feels like a lot of stuff that would happen in, like, The Office and stuff like that, that kind of, like, embarrassment-fueled comedy, is so perfectly sort of, like, blueprinted here. And leads to, like, so many other things that become massively popular and rewatch all the time on Netflix. It's a very influential movie, despite not being that popular at the time, uh, including, as you mentioned, with, uh, with Joker. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we'll get into Joker a little later. We'll see. Um, so... So why did you pick this movie? Because you've you've had the most eclectic range, uh, especially with repeat being a repeat guest. Congratulations on being the first three-peat guest here. Um, you Technically know, you, fourth if you count that bonus episode. True, if we count the, the Oscar episode, fourth. Um, I mean, the first time you appeared, you picked Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story, which I thought was just a, was not a pick I ever expected from you, and I ended up loving. Second time you came on, you picked Muppets Take Manhattan, which I already knew and loved. Um but this is just such diversity in your pick. So what inspired you to pick this movie to talk about? Well, because I think with your show, what I like doing with your show is talking about movies that, like, I normally wouldn't either get a chance to talk about, like, on my show or just be given the nature of have not seen this. It tends to be movies that I know have either, like, some kind of strong cult following but are kind of, like, the lesser seen ones. Like, even Muppets Take Manhattan is arguably the most, like, un- underseen of the Muppets movies. Walk Hard wasn't that big at the time, but it has a cult following, and I think this is the same thing, especially for, like, a king of comedy. So I wanted to expose more people to it, especially in the wake of something like a Joker. Right. Well, and I appreciate you picking it, because as I said, I had not seen this movie. Um, I have to admit, it wasn't on my radar until Joker was kind of bringing it up among the film critics and such, and then it, it was on my radar, but I just hadn't pulled the trigger on watching it. Um, and part of that is because, as I've said on the podcast before, I'm not a big Robert De Niro fan. And I, I talked about that on our Stardust episode because that's like one of my favorite Robert De Niro comedic performances. Um, and we've we've that's not the first time we've talked about Robert De Niro on here. We talked about him on The Mission. Midnight Run, I believe you've done as well. 
Yes, and Midnight Run. And I think with this pick, you have officially converted me to liking Robert De Niro a hell of a lot more. Because with those four movies, um, I'm, I'm just starting to see such a much more diverse performance from him than I had given him a shot with before. And with this one in particular, his performance is so powerful in such a small nuanced way like just the little mannerisms that he works in and the intonation into his his line delivery is just like that is a craftsman at work as far as acting goes and I've always kind of just written him off as kind of being a one-note actor and it's like oh wait no he, he's really uh quite an amazing performer yeah I think the way I've it's interesting because I I came on to when I rewatched Taxi Driver around the time of Joker I kind of came up with the idea that, like, basically my take on that movie is it's about a Nosferatu who thinks he's a Dracula. And in the case of The King of Comedy, it's a Renfield who already thinks he's a Nosferatu and wants to straight up become a Dracula immediately. <laughs> and how many people do you tell this vampire theory to? <laughs> <laughs> um, whoever will listen to you. Cutouts in my room <laughs> that I talk to all the time. Um, but, but no, I think that's what he's kind of working on basically it's just especially with this movie it's about such a lower level dude who thinks he's hot shit and right. it's especially even like he thinks he's the king of the sewer rats that he thinks are sewer rats like when he's around the autograph people just like look this is your life it's not mine i'm it's this i'm like way above all of you even like a sander bernhardt who seems to be his only friend he is such a dick to this entire time and thinks like right. oh no i'm i'm big shit i'm talk cock of the walk and that works so well because nero has so much confidence as a performer that his blustering confidence as Rupert Pupkin is both terrifying and incredibly hilarious. It is such a genius dark comedy performance. Yeah. And one of the first notes I actually wrote down was with that, the rabid fan, the woman in the car, and I had this note about De Niro, and this because I didn't even know his character name yet, it was De Niro tries to set himself apart from all of the other people. Um, and I want to come back to that because there is a, I kind of made a discovery over the course of the movie with that thought. But I didn't ask you the other key question, which is how do you how do you sell this movie to someone who has not seen it? How do you describe it in such a way that they want to see it? Um, well, I would basically to, to bring up the, the 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 elephant in the room once again of Joker. It's like, did you like Joker? Watch this because it's the movie that inspired so much of what you liked about Joker. And if you didn't like Joker or avoided it because weird people were telling you it's great, uh, this is the good version of it. <laughs> that is, um, it, it, that's that's leaning a lot on on Joker, but at the same time, that's not a bad description. Um, also, I mean, it's I, like a billion dollar grocer that was in the pop culture zeitgeist for quite a while, so I figured <laughs> that's not a bad you know thing to lean on. Good support. Yeah, I, I, I commented to you before we started recording that this led to me finally pulling the trigger on watching Joker. I had not seen that until this week. And the major difference I found between the two movies was empathy, that I felt sympathetic to De Niro's character throughout The King of Comedy. Even when he does some absolute batshit crazy things, I felt bad for him and I felt like I wanted him to achieve what he was after. And I felt none of that for Joaquin Phoenix's character in Joker. Like, I didn't feel anything for him other than just, like, uncomfortable. Yeah, I, th I think a lot of it is also weirdly, like, I agree that I think you are really more sympathetic to King of Comedy. But I think it's all in the way that, like, a Scorsese versus a Todd Phillips portrays either character. Where, like, with the Joker, I think Todd Phillips is trying to give you that kind of, like, sympath empathetic edge. Like, look, don't you, like, feel something for this Joaquin Phoenix character? And you don't like for me personally yeah, versus me Martin Scorsese isn't trying to do that at all. She's like, he is presenting Rupert Pumpkin as he is and his three dimensions, all like weird nooks and crannies of him. So you find more humanity in him because he isn't just walking Phoenix affectations. He's actually a character. <laughs> yeah. I, I found this quote from um, Jason Bateman. Uh, he did a, a watch of this movie and then did a Q&A afterwards, which it's like, well, why would he do a Q&A on a movie he has nothing to do with? And he talked about how he thinks this is one of the all-time just best acting performances because De Niro uh, performs at this high level but never loses the audience's sympathy. He never drops the ball. He never becomes self-celebratory even. And I wanted to get your take on that. Do you feel sympathy for Rupert? I don't know, because it's interesting. I think I don't necessarily feel 
total sympathy as much as, like, I can see real human traits in Rupert. It's kind of in the same way where, like, when I was a kid and I read Catcher in the Rye, and everyone said, oh, this kid's an asshole, and it's like, I agree this kid's an asshole, but also I know kids like this asshole. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think that's the thing, is, like, I see a lot of humanity in Rupert, and I think I see, honestly, every time I watch it with, like, each passing year, I just also see so much of, like, modern sort of, like, parasocial culture on the internet in particular. It produces right. so much of that. Yeah, and that's, I, I, that was the part that kind of scared me when I was watching it as far as just, like, how a almost 40-year-old movie has so much more relevance still because of that internet culture that instead of it being kidnapping uh, a talk show host to try and work your way onto the talk show host, it's just creating your own YouTube channel or your own TikTok channel. And the, there's that, that same almost overblown idea that I'm good enough and I'm going to make it. I'm going to be an instant. I'm going to be the king of comedy and that people who, who a lot of people who start those YouTube channels or start a podcast, they think they're going to be an overnight sensation and suddenly they're not. Right, but even then, it's also an issue of, like, Rupert doesn't even have that outlet because of the time period. He doesn't right. even have, like, any kind of thing where he can make his own corner, like, have a YouTube channel or anything like that. He just has his basement. He just has this, like, sad place where he can just, like, cheat, have the audience cheer that shot of, like, the wall of audience members. And, like, going back as he's, like, being praised by them is so phenomenal. Yeah. And, and even just all, like, the I love also any of the fantasy sequences, and especially how they're all shot with, like, that really crappy early 80s tv style that just blends to the weird <laughs> fantasy of it yeah no but i mean that's that's scorsese has has gone on record saying he feels like there's a lot of rupert's uh in today's society specifically because he sees that same element and i, I think that's helped keep the movie relevant even if it's unknown that there is still in this dark comedy in this satire from almost 40 years ago there's still a relevance to it that is almost mm -hmm. scary yeah, it, I think that's that's the thing, is that uh, Rupert is this character who, like we mentioned, you don't necessarily have to completely empathize with him, but you see a lot of, like, human elements to him, which makes all of his weird, awkward observations so great. Like, all of the scenes where he's waiting in yes. Jerry Lewis's office, like, in that area, there's so much of, like, that tension of, like, this guy is not going to move, and you've been in situations like this where a person does not want to <laughs> grasp reality, and you have to work around it, but at the same time, there's so many funny things, like him looking up at the ceiling, just like, is this cork? Like, mm -hmm. he thinks that's interesting. <laughs> right. Yeah, because it's uh, it's used for its sound qualities. <laughs> <laughs> like what the what the hell does that have to do with a reception area? But yet at the same time, you can kind of like, oh well, that's where his head is. Right. He thinks that that would be an interesting anecdote. That's conversation starter when right. he just has like no grasp on what any human would find interesting. He right. thinks he's the king of comedy, but it's just like you aren't the king of anything. You are a schmuck. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it, that's part of the awkwardness. Is it's just his own belief in himself but also he just has this whole social awkward interaction i mean like the scene where early in the movie where he he does get in the car with jerry and rides to jerry's apartment and you know he, jerry has said you know okay well call my manager uh you know or call my assistant and we'll try and get you set up with something and to me like that's success that's victory but then he won't let jerry go he keeps awkwardly calling after him and and adding another thing and adding another thing adding the little joke about the pride and joy which i laughed at by the way <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i think what's so funny is even it's not like the actual card but it's jerry lewis's reaction the very like uh -huh, it's good it's good right right <laughs> But it's just, but that, that perpetual awkwardness of continuing to call, like, he doesn't want the moment to end, so he just keeps calling Jerry back to the point that he pisses him off. And Jerry is just being nonstop polite about it, but De Niro's character is not socially attuned well enough to get that, okay, this is awkward now. Right, he, it's it's that thing where, like, De Niro's confidence, his sort of um, alpha male attitudes that he would have is, say, like, Vito Corleone in Godfather Part Two. Right. Like, he has all of that same kind of attitude, but none of the actual talent to back it up in this character, which makes it so funny every time he tries to, like, come up to people, especially uh, so much of a shout, like, to the, the receptionist woman. Oh, who, God, yes. Like, Shelley Hack is, like, so good at playing off in particular. Like, we read your tape, although we listened to your tape, and he's just like, uh-huh. Huh, huh. <laughs> he's like listening on every bated breath. He's like, huh, great. Are do you speak for Jerry? <laughs> <laughs> did you uh did you recognize Shelly Hack from anything else? Um she I I'd, I'd recently seen The Stepfather, where okay. she plays the mom in The Stepfather, but I hadn't seen her from anything else. 
Okay, I, it, I she has one of those faces. It took me like I had to 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 pause and look her up because it was just killing me. And she is the mom in Troll. Oh, the first troll. That's right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> the the good troll. <laughs> good being a relative term. <laughs> Mother of Harry Potter, the original yes. Harry Potter. Harry Potter Jr. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's take a quick look at the critical reviews. It sits at 89% at Rotten Tomatoes, 73% at Metacritic. It is, as I said, by the people who've seen it, it is a well-liked movie. Um, it's just the question of a lot of people not seeing it. Um, the negative review comes from the Associated Press from Bob Thomas, who writes, Scorsese is capable of building tension, but what is he trying to achieve? A comedy about the nature of fame? But he evokes only the most nervous of laughter. Is it a surreal view of television's insanities like Network? But instead of Patty Chayefsky's soaring words, we have actors improvising inane dialogue. The most interesting element of the film is Jerry Lewis as the ego-driven star. He is convincingly repelled by the events and shows promise of a real future as a dramatic actor. And the reason I wanted to pull that one in is about halfway through the movie, it made me think of Network, which I've talked with you about on your show. Yes. And I, I think it does have that same kind of astute observations about the world of television and it on that same level with network, which is a much more lauded film. Yes, though it's definitely a very different film in terms of that. It's very scripted, lots of big monologues, great movie. But at the same time, this one has more of this improvised feel that I think works so wonderfully. I think it has this more of this naturalism that I think I can see at the time it being kind of, you know, why it wasn't that successful because it's just like, it is so alienating. It feels too real. It doesn't feel like it's speaking to truths, but with like huger, larger monologues like that movie did. And I can see why that might turn people off. But at the same time, I think that just makes it, like we said, just age so perfectly and speaks even more about modern television stuff compared to a network. It It, it is known as being a more improvised film, but yet I'm I'm reading this interview with Martin Scorsese from Scorsese on Scorsese, where he says the King of Comedy had very little improvisation, just wall-to-wall dialogue, which is not surprising since the screenwriter speaks even faster than me. Yeah, I guess it's more varying reports, because I knew, like, Sandra Bernhardt, which, to be fair, maybe your mileage may vary if she, how much of the truth she might be telling. Depends, I don't know. <laughs> um, who knows? But I know she apparently said that she improvised a lot of her dialogue back and forth with De Niro, yeah. which I think, makes, I think that's the thing, is maybe it's just, like, what is improvised versus what's on the page melds together so well. It feels, like, so naturalistic regardless of, like, yeah. how much it is improvised or not. Yeah, I know um, both he and, um, uh, in this same article, he talks about uh, Jerry's speech about I'm just a human being with all the foibles and all the traps, that that was improvised, which is a hell of a speech to suddenly improvise, <laughs> if you ask me. Well, I mean, especially considering what Jerry Lewis has said about this movie, it's just like people have praised him have praised him for this movie, and he's just like, I don't know, it's just me, which yeah. <laughs> I think says a lot. <laughs> well, I was going to say, which doesn't picture him in the best light if he thinks about that. I think I would be pretending it was a character even if it wasn't. <laughs> No, I think it's astonishing, especially because I'm not as familiar with Lewis. Like, earlier today, I watched The Night Professor for the first time, his original movie. Mm -hmm. Um, Just to actually familiarize myself with, like, oh, what is the actual thing? And one, it's just like, man, this is just Professor Frank. I didn't know how, like, completely that was just, like, so similar. But two, it's so interesting how, like, he's clearly so committed to his bits that when he is so kind of, like, nonchalant, I think, like, that works so much better for him. It reminds me a lot more of, like, the Buddy Love character. In yes. terms of how much he just, like, throws off stuff in this movie. But at the same time, there are the sillier moments, like, in the fantasy sequence where he's talking to De Niro, and just like, I mean, and he's, like, smushing his face. Right. Um, or, especially the weird way he runs. Yes. I love his weird run with his, like, T-Rex arms that are going around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, it does... I, I noticed that, too, especially in the fantasy sequences. It does tend to allow him to get into his little more zany stuff. Still nowhere near the level with, like the bellhop or or what you just mentioned but it's a really good serious performance from him i do think the review is right about that 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 lewis's performance is is very interesting i don't know that i'd say it's the most interesting element of the film but it's pretty good um on the positive side uh bring in roger ebert like i try to do uh and ebert actually had mixed thoughts on this movie uh which he talks about over the course of the review that he saw it once and didn't like it but it stuck with him And then he writes, I walked out of that first screening filled with dislike for the movie. Dislike, but not disinterest. Memories of the King of Comedy kept gnawing at me, and when people asked me what I thought about it, I said I wasn't sure. Then I went to see the movie a second time, and it seemed to work better for me. 
maybe because I was able to walk in without any expectations, I knew it wasn't an entertainment. I knew it didn't allow itself any emotional payoffs. I knew the ending was cynical and unsatisfactory. And so with those discoveries no longer to be made, I was free to simply watch what was on the screen. Um, yeah, I mean, I can get that. I think it's a movie that I could see alienating somebody, but at the same time, even if you watch this on our recommendation and don't maybe like it, I think it is a movie that will stick with you. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, like, if you do give it another chance or not, regardless of, like, if you like it or not, I think a lot of the imagery and a lot of the emotions it makes you feel will, like, stick with you for a while. Yeah, it's like the image you're using as your backdrop there where he's performing to the, the, the static picture, but he hears the roar of the audience cheering him on and stuff. I think that that visual alone with that camera pulling back is just like, that's a moment that's a moment that will be forever etched in my memory as far as like cinematic moments go. It's brilliant. Right, and it, yet it's so weird that it's not that flashy a movie compared to like Scorsese's usual stuff. Like right. I think... It's, it's one of the ones that it has a lot more of just, like, kind of stagnant, let's have the actors kind of bounce off of each other kind of energy in the way of, like, a network. I think it's the biggest comparison. It's, like, it's not as, like, flashy with the visual style. But at the same time, I think that makes it just kind of, like, when he does do either, like, big camera moves or when he does, like, sort of do weird pacing elements. Like, I think what's so interesting is how weirdly this movie's paced. But yes. I think in a way that's, like, unique and fascinating, where it's, it, it's so much in the middle where, like, this was done because I know uh, De Niro wanted to do a comedy. He was so hard about doing comedy and brought the script to Scorsese, but it doesn't feel like any kind of comedy of this era or many even that have come afterwards. There's a few that you can kind of cling to. I think you can especially see like this is influential on somebody like a um, I, Joe King, I believe, um, who, whoever the or Jody Hill is the guy who does like the um, observe and report. And he's done like the Eastbound and Down stuff like that. A lot of that kind of like very mean, but character focused comedy has so much of an influence of this, but nothing hugely mainstream except for Joker, once again. <laughs> we keep mentioning the fantasy, because early in the film, um, as we we see him kind of interact with Jerry, and he has this moment, this authentic moment, connecting with him and trying to, to get himself on Jerry's show. Uh, and then that moves into a fantasy where... Uh, he is now famous and Jerry is begging him to take over the show for six weeks, just six weeks. But one of the things that Scorsese was trying to do with his picture is he wanted to blur the line between what is fantasy and what is reality. And there were several moments in the movie where I started questioning whether what I was watching was authentic or not. Like when he ends up on the date with Rita, you know, was that real? And, of course, over the course of the scene, it becomes pretty evident that, yes, it is real. Because the fact that when he had his dinner with Jerry, his his fantasy dinner with Jerry, people were hounding him for autographs. But when he has his dinner with Rita and he gives her the address, the uh, autograph book and is going through it and shows her his autograph, she's not impressed. Right. What do you think in this movie was real and what do you think was fantasy as far as like especially towards the inclusion of the film? I think especially, like, with the, the ending, that, that's always sort of been a question. is like, how much of, like, the ultimate resolution is real. I, I would consider, like, much of it to at least be real. But at the same time, I think whenever we especially get these shots on TV, it's the most questionable. Like, even of his stand-up set and how certain people, like, certain reactions that we get, I think, might be a bit off. Um, so I, it has that sort of weird thing where, like, I'm not sure how much of it is real or how much of it is fantasy. But what's so interesting is with time, those lines blur even more because mm-hmm. as you consider things, especially like the ending of like how famous he might have gotten post prison um, there, I think the first time I saw this, I'm like, oh, that's bullshit. None of that happened. And this is just like his weird, maybe uh, in prison fantasy. And like, especially even rewatching it for this show, it's just like, this, this doesn't feel that unreal anymore. And that's really <laughs> sad. <laughs> Which is uh, which is more a, a changing of the times than a changing of the film itself. You know that that's that's certainly what happens nowadays. You know, I mean, what's shoot to to date this episode, I guess, a little bit within the past week. Bill Cosby's been released from prison, and there's been a debate about whether he should be interviewed, whether you know networks and different venues should have him on to interview, and the amount of money that he could make just off of interviews alone. Um, about what's happened to him. And also so much of how he wants to, like, start up a new comedy tour. Right. And stuff like that, too. 
And that's, you know, I mean, his fame very clearly doesn't come from this incident, this part of his life, but he could certainly capitalize on this part of his life and make a, a ton of money. And that's kind of what's going on in the movie is that, you know, oh, Rupert kidnapped this guy and held him hostage so that he could be on the TV. And he's going to, according to the ending of the movie that we get, he capitalizes on that. Now, whether that's reality or not is really left up to the discretion of the, of the viewer, which I like. I love that Scorsese leaves it vague, but I just, especially with the changing of the times, it's hard to tell whether that was intended to be fantasy or not. Yeah. I also love how sometimes he'll, like, get you in and out of the reality. Like, even the singer talking about early on the first fantasy of him having the lunch with Jerry. How much of it cuts from, like, Jerry in this restaurant setting to Rupert in his basement talking to nobody. In his mom's basement, just to make him even more pathetic. And and shout out to Scorsese's mom with the perfect, like, voiceover. (laughs) 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 Um, Yeah, so I just... I. I, I love that aspect of it. And and you're right. I mean, like the I love the fantasy even when we don't see the fantasy, like when he goes into his his basement room and he has the the cardboard cutouts of uh, Jerry and of Liza Minnelli. And he sits yes. himself in between them and he can hear the, the the roar and he's interacting with the cutouts as if they're real people. And it's like we know because of the other fantasy sequences, how he sees that in his head. We're not shown it, but we can connect the dots and go, this is what's going on in his head. Right. Yeah. I, I, I love how it, it does that. And I think that's the interesting thing is also how much of like Rupert, like even with the times, there's certain elements like him, you know, being at this lower state, like there's nothing necessarily like I can empathize with him being in this particular situation, but at the same time, it's just his blistering attitude about it. His complete delusion is right. what makes him so much more, like, sort of almost villainous. And I think that's what's also so interesting, especially considering the De Niro comedy uh, kind of, like, persona he affected, especially, like, a decade or so after this. Like, when we get to more of the Meet the Parents era. Right. How much of, like, I think what's missing from that thing where he's going full comedy is he just is more playing off of, like, oh, I just have to be my sort of, like, tough guy persona. Mm-hmm. And that'll be funny playing off some other funnier person. And it's like, no, dude, you're naturally funny. It's more of like, if you have that kind of attitude, but have a slight twist on it like this case, that's what's so much more funny about him, like in this or Midnight Run, anything well, like and that's, that. And that's, I think, where my disdain of De Niro has come from, is my introduction to him as a comedic actor was, you know, analyze this and meet the parents and stuff. And it's like... You go back and you watch this movie and you watch Midnight Run. Yeah, he's got real comedic chops, whereas what he's doing in those more more recent comedies is just almost playing a caricature of the roles he's been known for playing. It's almost lazy. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, my also my introduction, I think the first De Niro movie I saw in the theater was uh, the, the, the Rocky and Bullwinkle movie. I forgot he was even in that. <laughs> that was like a weird passion project. Did he produce that? He really wanted that to be a thing <laughs> when oh no one else wanted it. <laughs> I totally forgot that he was in that. Oh, my God. <sighs> and that was your introduction to De Niro. Um, yes. I keep forgetting you're such a young pup. <laughs> <laughs> This is Shane Grove, the host of From the Shadows podcast. If you enjoy a good conversation about the mysterious and supernatural, or just about anything else that has made you wonder, what the heck is that all about? Then join me and my crew, the judge, Jason the producer, Jerry the ghost hunter, and our resident skeptic, the Ozark Howler, on an episode of From the Shadows podcast. You can find us at our website at fromtheshadowspodcast.godaddysites.com. There's a comment made during the dinner with Rita where when he pulls out the autograph book and he's showing her all the autographs and then he gets to the last one and, oh, it's sloppy and, you know, the, the sloppier, the bigger the fame or whatever, and it's his. And she says to him, you haven't changed. Now, we never get a backstory on Rupert. We never get an idea of who he was when he was younger. But that line just really stuck out to me. How do you take that? Well, I think it's sort of like the... Um, arrested development 
angle of like Rupert Pumpkin's character where they intimate that she was in high school with him and all this other stuff. And I think Diana Abbott, uh, credit to her, does so much with especially like how much she reacts off Rupert comes from somebody who like knew this guy vaguely from before, but the more he's around, the more it's not like, oh, I don't recognize you because you've matured so much as a person. I recognize you because of the few fleeting memories I have of you are exactly what you are. You have not changed whatsoever. And I think that's what makes it so fascinating. He's still that kid who thinks like, you know what, those bullies who made fun of me in high school, I'm going to show all of them. There's so much that even strictly in the fantasy sequences, like when he, his principal's marrying the two of them. Right. Like that. He's still like that weird nerd, ment- that, that weird modern nerd mentality of just like, oh, you know what, I, nerds are always outcasted and we're going to take our vengeance. At this point, like, you guys have won. Like, nerd <laughs> pop culture stuff is like the, the main thing everyone focuses on at this point. Right. You shouldn't be this bitter and this much of an asshole. You've just become everything you've hated. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I do. I did. That fantasy cracked me up with appearing on Jerry's show and then the mystery guest who is his old high school principal, who's also a public official so he can marry Rita. And there's a big apology for how they looked down upon him when he was younger. And I think I don't think there's anybody who wasn't looked down upon at some point in their life who hasn't fantasized about getting that apology at some point, but not at that age. Like you outgrow that (laughs) fantasy and Rupert hasn't. Right, at 34, he's still that focused on that. Right, right, right. And that's, I mean, and that was my second note that I added to that that first note about how, you know, you have all of the the celebrity hounds at the beginning just just mobbing Jerry at the beginning, and, and De Niro tries to separate himself from them, first of all, by helping Jerry, and then when he gets in the car with Jerry, convincing him to let him stay, because he's not like the other people. He tries to set himself apart. And the truth is what you discover about him over the course of the movie is he is different. He is apart from the rest of them. But part of that is that social awkwardness. He doesn't understand boundaries. Yeah. And that makes him dangerous compared to somebody who's just mobbing for an autograph. Right. Um, yeah, I think that's so, so interesting. There's more of like a malicious intent. He doesn't think he's malicious. Right. That's what's so upsetting is that it's so much just like, oh, no, like I'm a different person. I'm so much higher. I'm friends with Jerry, all this other stuff. And that's what gets you this kind of guy who has this super confidence and no sense of boundaries. Like, it seems like him invading Jerry's country home, which is spectacular. It's such a awesome cringe comedy scene. And apparently, speaking of improvised moments, that was another one. Was the butler trying to open the door when Jerry finally returns? That that was not intended to take that long. He just couldn't get the door unlocked. And when he opens it, Jerry walked in and delivered that line. And they were just like, oh, yep, that's good. (laughs) Yeah, shout out to Kim Chan is that guy who's so fucking funny. Especially even when he's on the phone with Jerry, just like, what's wrong? Everything's wrong. (laughs) 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 And that's also where you get so many of like the best comedic moments are just a lot of like Jerry reacting off of De Niro in sequences like that. Uh, where like their his just facial reactions to him talking about like where, where, where's everybody what everybody <laughs> what right. are you talking about or or later on when he's kidnapped with like the the gum yes. that whole back and forth is so phenomenal oh god yes well the the where is everybody I particularly loved because I think I just we have too many contemporary movies that have to spell it out for the audience but. If you've been watching the movie and paying attention, in his fantasy, he was invited for a weekend retreat where they could work on the show and there were going to be other people there. And that was that was in Rupert's fantasy that he then is attempting to manifest into reality when he shows up at the 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 beach house or whatever. And that, yeah, he asks, where is everybody? And it's this subtle line that just shows you how unhinged in some ways Rupert is. And and you're right. It's not malicious. He's not trying to be mean. He is just confused. And therefore dangerous. Where it's yeah. like he's not, he doesn't have any of that intent, but he is fully malicious in his actions. He just yeah. doesn't realize it whatsoever. <laughs> well, no. Yeah. I mean, the fact that they kidnap Jerry and the, as you said, the, 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 the scene with the gum as he's, you know, tying him up or whatever. And it was just like that, that little interaction, that 30 seconds or so of the movie is so brilliant. And part of the reason it's brilliant because it's yet another moment. It's just like in the reception area where Rupert is just so awkward. And yet there's a genuine authenticity brought to that by De Niro's performance where he doesn't realize that this is all. He doesn't realize that in the middle of tying someone or patting someone down for weapons, you don't like have this interaction about gun gum. It's just like, oh, there's gum. Can I have a piece? Do you do you want a piece? Do you want 
And then Sandra Bernhardt's reaction was just like, yes, I would. Could you save me one? It's kind of awkward to do it right now when I have the gun in his face. Right, right. And I'm just sitting there in my chair watching this movie cringing at how awkward this is. Like, just, like, get it, move on. And yet they they hold that beat, and it's and that's where the comedy comes from. I love uh, that is it. my question for you, especially, like, do you think it's funny as much as it is, like, upsetting? I don't think it's upsetting, I, I, I mean, it's it's again, that interview Scorsese says this is not a comedy. It has funny moments to it, but it's not a comedy. And I kind of agree with that. It's not a comedy. Um, did I find that moment funny? Yeah, but not like ha ha laughing out loud type funny, but just in its awkwardness, there is humor in it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's, I would still classify it as, like, a dark comedy. It's definitely, like, there's so many attempts at, like, comedy thriller. That's such a weird genre that some people try and often fail at. Right. And I think this is one of the rare examples of it being brilliant, because it is at the same, I think, the throughout the entire movie, I have just as much of, like, a, oh, this is, like, darkly humorous in a human way, but also so much of the tension of, like, is somebody going to get fucking murdered in any second or something like that? You don't know. <laughs> right. And and that's one of the other little subtle moments that I loved about this movie is when he finally, when, when Jerry finally escapes. It's too late because Rupert's already gone on the air. But he is, he finally escapes and he grabs the gun. And when the trigger's pulled and it's just a, a dart gun or whatever, it's a toy gun. There had been a line when they were first in the car following Jerry to abduct him where MASH says it looks real. And I just like I heard it and I thought about it and I let it go. And it wasn't until that moment later on the revelation that it's not a real gun that I went, oh, right. She did tell us that. Yeah. <laughs> it really soaks you in the reality. And at the same time, the situation where you just don't even think about that moment because you're too sucked into the individual moment that's going on, especially right. with like Sandra Bernhardt, that whole dinner scene. With Jerry, oh, God, with the gun on the plate, I was like, "Okay, he's gonna die." Like she's serving, she is serving death on a plate there, like almost metaphorically and almost literally. <laughs> Which, once again, there's so much of the tension of like, is she gonna murder him? But also, Jerry Lewis's face that whole time is hilariously stone-faced. Oh yeah, so much of just like I, I hate every single second I'm here. <laughs> but it's not even fear; it's just like just annoyed the whole yeah, time. And- and that's his performance. I mean, that's as you said earlier, like even like the when they're at his his weekend house, you know, that his his reaction in that scene when Rupert won't shut up is just stone faced anger, like this seething anger. But he's not like I know Jerry Lewis as an over the top comedian. I, I've never seen him do this, this, this kind of a performance before, which is part of why I think it's so brilliant. Yeah. Um, and especially even like his offhand things, like when eventually um, Diane Abbott and uh, Rod De Niro leave the beach house and the butler comes up to just like, you did good, Mr. Jerry. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Like he's complimentary of that. Yeah, but that was where I'm trying to remember where that was in the film. The beach house, like right after De Niro leaves. It's the, the beach house. He has the, the line that really shocked me where Rupert says, I made a mistake, and Jerry's response is, so did Hitler. I was like, damn, really, you're comparing this schlub with Hitler? (laughs) This is coming from the man who made The Day of the Clown Cried. I think he knows a thing or two. (laughs) (laughs) The other line, of course, that I I, I, I immediately stood out to me, and of course, I didn't know this movie. I hadn't done any research on it because I wanted to see it cold, and I guess it's the best-known line from the movie which is Jerry's line towards the end about better to be king for a night than schmuck for a lifetime. What right. do you think? Um, you know, I, I, I could enjoy being a schmuck in a certain way as opposed to king for a night in this particular way. No, not a, not a fan. Hot take. Not a fan. So you're, so you're not going to be kidnapping uh, Mark Maron anytime soon? <laughs> oh, I just shit my pants while you tie me to this thing. <laughs> Who are you guys? Who are you kidnappers? Come on, tell me. One of the things I really, <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> One of the things I really liked about the movie is we see Rupert finally get to go on. He has the interaction with the FBI backwards. He back backstage. He doesn't understand why they're acting the way they are because in his head, uh, I'm going to go on, and then Jerry's going to be let loose, and he doesn't understand that you know they they have a job to do here. Um, but he finally gets to go on. He's introduced, and Scorsese cuts away at that point. We're not going to see that stand-up comedy bit until later when Rupert gets to watch it at the bar 
to show it to uh, Rita. I thought the comedy routine was actually quite good, which kind of is one of the, the, the little pet peeves I've had about this movie and the comparisons to Joker was it's people saying both movies are about an untalented schlub who blah, 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 blah. And I was like, no, actually, Rupert was talented. They were right. If he had practiced, he probably could have gotten there eventually on his own. I think I think what's interesting is I don't necessarily think it's like incredible, but I see like the spark of like a good comedian there. There's some hacky material stuff like it's like Jerry even said like, or um, Shelley Hack even said this to him. Just like I think you can work on, and I think you could potentially come on the show. You just gotta work on it a bit. But there's some even like especially the way he's doing the very Robert De Niro Italian hand gestures in that suit. I love the way the suit's buttoned and it just keeps going up with all of his moves and stuff like that. I, I think that's the thing is I, I agree. I think there's the spark of some kind of like, oh, you could be a talented stand-up if you worked on it, but he doesn't want to do the work. He doesn't want to actually like put the practice in that any other talented stand-up would actually do. Right. He wants the shortcut, which, again, is the part that I think is relevant today to to all the social media people, the, the, the would-be influencers who want the shortcut. They want to be famous overnight. They don't want to put the work into it. Right. All right. So we've mentioned Joker a few times. <laughs> <laughs> what, do you, what do you want to say about the comparisons between these movies? I just think the sad thing about a Joker is that I think there's, like, obviously, like, I think Joaquin Phoenix is a really talented actor, and I think some elements really work, like, the costuming and even the uh, production design. There's really good elements to that. It's just that at its core, it feels so much more hollow. Mm -hmm. It is so much more of, like, it's striving for all this stuff. It's weirdly, it's trying to take a shortcut to get to can comedy by having, like, oh, we can have, like, the Joker as our main character here, and everybody will love it. And, you know, to a certain extent, maybe they were a bit right, because everybody went and fucking saw it, at least, and everyone talked about it. Uh, but it feels like it is... It's it's not nearly as good a movie as Joker, as, uh, as the King of Comedy, but weirdly, Joker feels like it is Rupert Pupkin epitomized as, like, a film. You think it so? Is, well, I think okay. in terms of, like, like, the shortcut and trying to get to this particular point without actually doing the work... It is okay. so much of, like, all the worst toxic tendencies. The lesson that somebody, like, Todd Phillips took from that movie is not, oh, there's, a like, a really fascinating character study and a weird tragedy of this character. It's all about, oh, this is, I can use, like, the very shallow version of this to make a weird version of a superhero property and make tons of money. And uh, he did. That is, I, I that's a brilliant idea that the movie is Rupert personified taking the shortcuts and that kind of stuff. That's, I would never have thought of that. Good, good job on that. <laughs> Criticism. <laughs> uh, Nobel Peace Prize, please. <laughs> uh, you're, you're not on the right venue for that. I am not, uh, I, I am not Jerry. <laughs> NPR won't take my calls. I went to their offices all the time. They wouldn't let me in. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, one more question I want to ask you about an ambiguous moment that they had kind of between the characters early on. Um, I mean, we see Mosh in the first scene as the crazy woman in the car. I didn't recognize her as, as Sandra Bernhardt at that point. It's when I when her name appeared in the credits that I was like, fuck you, Thomas. Um, but there's an interaction between the two of them, between Rupert and, and Mosh, where they're walking down the street and she wants him to deliver this letter and he essentially extorts some money out of her uh, to to pay him back for stuff that he did before so that he can deliver the letter. And one of his excuses is, I can't even pay my rent this month. But he lives in his mom's basement. And the money is never touched upon again. What do you think he wanted the money for? I think it's more of like a power thing. Like okay. he can extort that out of Sandra Bernhardt. Because once again, it's him being at this mildly higher level in his mind of like, oh no, I'm totally with Jerry and all sort of stuff. He has all the cards on the table, so he's able to get that out of her. And I love how even how nonchalant he is, but just like, okay, I appreciate this, but you know, I, we're, we're going to settle this later or whatever. It's it's constructing this word fantasy in a way that like he feels like he can do it even as a comedian. Like even in his routine, he talks about like, my mom's been dead for nine years. And it's like, no, she's no, alive. You, if you live yeah, with you her. live with yeah. her. <laughs> right. So it's, it's so much like he is constructing his own reality and using that particular place in his reality to extort things from other people. Uh, his own reality being something like, I wasn't thrown out, I was invited to leave. Right, yes. <laughs> it's, 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 the, it's the Toy Story principle of like, that wasn't uh, flying, that was falling with style. Right. He lives by that principle. <laughs> right. All right, uh, what do you want to talk about about the King of Comedy that we have not mentioned yet? Um, you mentioned the 
um, at least the the opening credits. Uh, it doesn't have as many traditional Scorsese needle drops, but the ones that are there are perfect. Like Ra- "Come Rain or Come Shine" during the opening credits is phenomenal. The perfect song to set the tone for the movie. No lie. Yeah, and then later on the um, the uh, Van Morrison the wonderful remark. I think it's also the perfect song to end the movie on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he actually mentioned that in the bit where he was talking about having very little improvisation. Uh, said, you know, the screenwriter speaks even faster than me. We couldn't fit the music in. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and also shout out to just two uh, smaller bits. Uh, Tony Randall as the guest host, especially him prepping with Martin Scorsese, <laughs> is a really funny bit. It's just like the firing squad. You think this is funny? And Scorsese's like, it's pretty funny. It's pretty funny. <laughs> The Tony Randall bit I loved was the cue cards where he specifically asked the woman to make sure she stayed on top of, you know, she did, she was fast with the cue cards. And then when he's reading the monologue in front of the audience, he's like, turn the cue card, please. You know, and it's like, you could see the little frustration, but he's not going to lose his shit in front of the audience type thing. Right. Versus it's a perfect mirroring moment of earlier on with Jerry where the whole thing, I have a gun with the cue cards, just like, it's backwards. You didn't write anything on that one. (laughs) (laughs) That was also a brilliant bit. (laughs) <laughs> and but but he also had that same kind of level of frustration of you know it's upside down you know that get it, my life is at stake here fix the fucking cue cards is like kind of the subtext of what he's doing in that scene <laughs> right how weirdly despite like tony being in front of like a, an audience versus him like in the middle of this horrible situation tense situation it's not that dissimilar at all <laughs> right no i didn't think about that but you're right yeah it's kind of the same thing <laughs> yeah all right, man. Well, let's uh, let's close this up with a couple of games here. First up, we have The Algorithm Says. This is a list of various movies that several algorithms say you will like because you like The King of Comedy. This is kind of a lightning round of your responses. Do you like them? Do you not like them? Have you not seen them? Or do you not see how they're connected? Are you ready? I know this rodeo, Rafe. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, but you have to set it up. It's kind of like the beginning of your show where every week you explain the concept of your show. Like, I listen every week. I know the fuck. Oh, right. You might have new listeners. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. And I did cull quite a bit of Scorsese titles from this list. I will say that. All right. So first up, Mean Streets. I mean, basically with like the connection of Scorsese and all that and De Niro, obviously. Um, I mean, it's a great movie. It's a, such a phenomenal like not technically his first movie because there's like boxcar birther or whatever right. but like it's the movie that at least was his calling card I, and also there's some thematic stuff i can see with like low lives in the main roles all that i get that yeah okay taxi driver uh like i said the sort of redhead stepchild to <laughs> taxi driver right the boy everyone loved versus king of comedy <laughs> all right um alice doesn't live here anymore I mean, only in as much as there's the Scorsese connection. Underrated movie. Very good movie. Very unlike a lot of what Scorsese has done um, before and since, but not quite as connected to can comedy, I don't think. Okay. I, I have to admit, I have not seen that one. So, um, The Color of Money. That is one of the fewer Scorsese's I have not seen, actually. Really? Okay. I saw The Hustler because that was on Criterion Channel recently, but I, have, I need to still watch the, King, uh, the Color of Money. Okay. Paper Moon. Um, very good movie, and I can, I guess, kind of see, like, the Connors connection, but otherwise, no. Not really. Okay. But, but great movie. The Conversation. Oh, we've, we've covered that on the show. You I have. That movie. <laughs> That's such a great, under, once again, very underrated movie. Um, and I guess I can kind of see, like, some of the dirtier, grimer, grimier aesthetics to it, and I don't think uh, Gene Hackman and De Niro in this one are, like, that dissimilar as characters, necessarily, but... Hmm, okay. All right. They're both very isolated loners. <laughs> uh, the Graduate. Yeah, not not sure I see the connection as much. Great movie, but yeah. I think it's the idea, kind of as Ebert said, you know, this is not a movie where, you know, you have like the glamorous, joyous ending. You know, it mm-hmm. is. It, and, I, and The Graduate definitely falls in that category as well. True. Uh, Strangers on a Train. Great movie, and I guess it kind of fits a similar, like, there is a bit of a thriller with slight com- comedic elements angle to it that, like, Hitchcock was known for. Um, but I think that's also more of a stretch to connect okay. it. It was not the only Hitchcock to come up on the list either, so that's, that's I, w- I, was, I wanted to make sure I included one. Uh, Dr. Strangelove. Um, yeah, a very kind of different movie, but I, I guess especially sort of like the uh, comedy mixed with dread. <laughs> I kind of get... <laughs> I, I, I just saw Dr. Strangelove for the first time a couple of weeks ago, and I said the exact same thing about it that I've said about this, which is it's frightening how relevant the social commentary is so many years later. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something they both have in common. True. All right, finally, The Hudsucker Proxy. 
very underrated movie. Really yes. dig that movie. Tremendous yeah. movie. It's probably um, my favorite Coen Brothers film. I, I mean, I don't know if I'll go that far, but I think it definitely deserves a lot more attention. Uh, but I also don't quite see the connection as much to King of Comedy. Yeah. Though it has plenty of funny moments, like, you know, for kids. For kids. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, we always close with a pop quiz for multiple choice questions based on the movie. Are you ready? Yes. All right. Number one, Jerry Langford was originally scripted as the name Bobby Langford, but then changed when Jerry Lewis was hired. Why did they change the name? A, so he wouldn't have to act in order to respond to his name. B, so they could get authentic crowd reactions when Jerry is walking through the streets of New York. C, because there was a real Bobby Langford who threatened to sue. Or D, because Lewis had it in his contract that any character he plays must be called Jerry. I believe it's B, the authentic reactions. It is. Ah, my bell. <laughs> it is. That's the second time I've forgotten to grab my bell before recording. Uh, yeah, they, they knew they were going to do shooting in the streets, and uh, so they changed the name to Jerry so people could just yell out at him. And a lot of the interactions you see in the movie as he's walking down the streets are people just yelling Jerry to him because it's Jerry Lewis. Okay, another great bit we didn't talk about, the thing with the lady at the phone. And the yeah, phone. which really happened? Apparently, yeah, like, it was apparently based on Jerry Lewis directed that scene. It's just like, yeah, this happened to me, so do it exactly like this. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I put the bit in it there about the lawyer, uh, about the character, person threatening to sue, which is obviously a fake thing. But that was the moment in the movie that made me think of Network, was when in the midst of they're discussing how to handle things when a man's life is at stake, the lawyer stands up and says he's going to sue. And I was like, yeah. that is a Network moment right there. <laughs> yes. Uh, all right, number two, Rupert's nagging mother was heard but never seen on screen. Denoting how important of a character she is, however, Scorsese picked a very particular actress to play her. Who was it? And you've already answered this in the show. His own mother. Yep. Uh, yeah, he picked his own mom to play that. It's not, not the only time he's used her in one of his films. But, oh, uh, like yeah. Goodfellas. So great, that scene where she just cooks for, for all of them. Yeah. Like, rubbed your own Joe Pesci and all that. <laughs> right. Uh, all right, number three, before selecting Jerry Lewis for the role of Langford, several of his fellow Rat Pack actors were considered along with what talk show legend? A, Jack Parr, B, Johnny Carson, C, J. Leno, or D, David Letterman? I believe it would be Johnny Carson. It was, yes. Johnny Carson, they actually offered it to him and he turned it down. Two of those were not technically legends at that point in 1982, so that doesn't quite... Correct, mean. correct. <laughs> All right, and last question. Uh, Martin Scorsese has gone on record to say he probably shouldn't have made this movie. Which of the following is not one of his reasons for saying that? Uh, a, the impact of the looming director's strike. B, a series of previous productions uh, had an impact on his health. C, the requirements of filming in New York made for exhausting working conditions. Or D, he felt too personally connected to Rupert's story. Hmm. Um, I know at least I think the two in the middle are actual reasons. I'm going to say A. Uh, no, the impact of the looming director strike actually meant they had four weeks less of pre-production than they were going to have because they had to get going on it. Um, okay. His reason, uh, the reason that wasn't was he felt too personally connected to Rupert's story. He's actually said when he started production, he felt very connected to Rupert. Hmm. All right, man. Uh, so where can people find you? What do you want to promote? Uh, well, um, the main thing is the podcast, uh, Double Edge Double Bill, uh, where each week my co-host Adam Thomas and I pick a random double feature based upon a one good movie, one bad movie related to whatever topic that we're doing. And uh, we usually post that over on the ESO network and also on our Podbean main feed. Uh, you can find us at DEDBpod uh, for on Facebook and Twitter. Um, for ex um, recent episodes include, we have an episode that's about to come out as we're recording this about athletes, um, starring in films where we covered snatch and space jam, the original, <laughs> all you nineties kids, I'm sure are so devastated. That's the bad pick. I'm so sorry. Not, um, but, and, uh, we'll be doing a, a episode as well upcoming for 2021 films so far, where our good pick is Barb and Star go to Vistel Del Mar. And our bad pick is cherry. The Tom Holland movie. <laughs> See, I've told you a previous time you came on the show, there are times where I open my phone and look at your podcast title and go, which one is the good film and which is the bad film? And I, I mean, I haven't seen either of those movies, but just based on their trailers and my interest in them, I would have gone the other way and said Cherry is a good pick and Barb and Star are not so good. I love Barb and Star so much. It's such a great movie. <laughs> it just came to, uh, I think, Hulu. I just yes. saw it. I'm also at Not the Who's Tommy on Twitter for my own stuff, um, where my own musings... 
Um, I'm also on Letterboxd with that. And I do some writing up with my pro- blog, uh, marianithomas.wordpress.com, and also film-cred.com, where I've been writing a few things, including a recent piece about Conan O'Brien. Right. Which was really well done, by the way. Um, Thank you. If I didn't say that part at the beginning of the show, uh, yeah, that was it was that was I, I wasn't as sad at Conan's retirement because I know he's doing something else and he's got the podcast and stuff. But you 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 brought out some feels in me with that piece. I gotta say. Thank you. Appreciate that. All right, man. Well, thank you. Thank you for introducing me to this film. Well, um, you know, as I said, it's been on my radar since Joker, but uh, I hadn't pulled the trigger on watching it, and I'm really glad I did. This is a movie worth watching and it's one that definitely is going to stick with me for a while as far as like some of those moments are just really well assembled uh definitely definitely top tier scorsese for me i don't know he didn't go dancing down the stairs rafe it's not that good a movie he should have been dancing (laughs) down the stairs that's what that's what makes cinema rafe what does he what does scorsese know about cinema what is he (laughs) So that does it for this week, but you can keep the conversation going throughout the week on social media. Share your thoughts about The King of Comedy, or maybe tell me about a movie you'd like to come on the show and talk about. You can find me at Town Hess on Twitter and Letterboxd, that's T-A-L-N-H-E-S-S, or the show at Have Not Seen This on Twitter, on Facebook, where at Have Not Seen This Podcast, or you can email me at have not seen this at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. This podcast is available through all major podcast sources. Positive ratings and reviews are always welcome, as is just sharing the podcast with a friend and spreading the love. And if you like World of Warcraft or other Blizzard games, be sure to check out my other podcast, Citizens of Azeroth, a World of Warcraft podcast, also available through all major podcast sources. Special thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song, and thanks to Thomas Mariani for providing this week's conversation. Until next week, I'm Rafe Telsch, and this has been Have Not Seen This. Be kind to each other.